Okay, well, good night and welcome everyone to another exciting episode of Pognosis After Dark. Don't oversell it, Bishop. Yeah. Well, I think this is going to be an exciting episode. Uh, we're discussing one of our favorite verses, the Gospel of Thomas, verse 13. We are being joined by Bishop Peterson, as usual, by our great producer, Father Tony, and by our great friend, Deacon John. Hello and good evening, everyone. Hello. Good evening, Hello. everyone. Hello. Before we get started, actually, can I jump in here? Uh, we have Absolutely. New, we have a new Patreon supporter that I wanted to thank. We wanted to thank David for his support of awesome. the yes. NYC Network. Thank you very much. And, uh, you know, you too, if you are listening to this podcast, can support us. And we'll give you a shout out and a thank you uh, when you do. Go to patreon.com slash Gnostic and your support helps us build new and better Gnostic-y things for you to enjoy. <laughs> Fantastic. Fantastic. Well, um, Bishop Peterson, do you want to do like we did in our video and maybe for our listeners who are not familiar with verse 13, go ahead and give it a good read. Okay, I got this brought up here. Um, Jesus said to his disciples, compare me, tell me whom I am like. Simon Peter said to him, you are like a righteous angel. Matthew said to him, you are like a wise philosopher. Thomas said to him, Master, my mouth is wholly incapable of saying whom you are like. Jesus said, I am not your master, for you have drunk, and you have become drunk from the bubbling spring which I have caused to gush forth. And he took him, withdrew, and spoke to him three words. Now when Thomas came back to his companions, they asked him, What did Jesus say to you? Thomas said to them, If I tell you one of the words which he said to me, you will take up stones and throw them at me, and a fire will come out of the stones and burn you up. Now, right off the bat, actually, um, mm -hmm. you're reading from the Lambden translation, mm -hmm. um, which says you are like a righteous angel. But in the uh, Patterson-Meyer and the Patterson-Robinson translation, they both say, uh, you are like a, wait a minute, I lost it here. Uh, you are like a just messenger. Just messenger. Yeah. Right. Um, any Coptic scholars in the room know why that might be? Is, uh, is the word angel and messenger similar? I want to say that it is, that it's something that I seem to recall from way back in biblical studies classes, but I can't absolutely be sure. Yeah, to, to my that. knowledge, but I'm not a linguist, but to my knowledge, yes. I mean, angel and messenger um, have very similar, if not almost identical meanings. I can, I can double check that. That's, that's what I seem to recall. Um, Light, Bentley Layton also says uh, angel. Doris says angel. Blatt says angel. So... Hmm. But as I seem to recall, messenger and angel are are, associate, are equivalent. But that's, that's also, what I remember. It's a long time ago. And also in the translation that you just read, you also used the uh, term master, yep. where uh, in the uh, previous translation that was uh, read during our video show, it was teacher. My mouth is utterly unable to say what you're like. Jesus said, I am not your teacher. Um, so there is a little bit difference in there also. And again... Do we know? I, I assume that's rabbi in either case. Right. Yeah. Right. Um, Rabbanai or, or whatever. Because mm -hmm. yeah, Leighton has it as teacher, Doris has it as master. I will say also that the term uh, teacher and master, it ha it, it's less common today. But back in the day, if you read some old historical fiction or whatnot, you'll find the term master used interchangeably, sometimes with teacher. The, the English word master and teacher. You, you hear somebody who has a Latin master or a, a, a singing master or an art, art master. Somebody who is a, a teacher could yeah. also be called a master. So The Italian maestro. Mm -hmm. <laughs> mm -hmm. yeah. Tell us about the Italian, John. The, Ita <laughs> the Italian maestro? <laughs> yeah, just the, no, the language in general. <laughs> <laughs> uh, John taught me some uh, Italian at Conclave a couple of weeks ago. Or rather, I was singing a song in Italian that I didn't actually know <laughs> what I was singing, and he told me what it was. <laughs> ah, yes, yes. But th that, that's a good point, because it does show up in words like maestro, meister, which is, of course, the, the, the German uh, slash Austrian 
uh, take on that. So you do uh, see that usage. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so the point I, w- I wanted to make about what something you said during the video show with which I disagreed. Mm-hmm. Um, you said that um, when Peter and Matthew gave their answers, you implied that Jesus w- said that they were wrong, but they but he he doesn't actually say that. No, he doesn't. So no, it, my my feeling on that has always been, you know, as somebody who gives presentations, you know, on a, mm-hmm. on a fairly regular basis, and you ask the, the a question of the room as mm-hmm. Jesus did in this example, you get mm-hmm. a lot of answers back, and a lot, of, you know, and especially in the stuff that we talk about, it's it's not often wrong. It's mm-hmm. just that there's a better answer you're waiting for. So you ask two or three people until you get the perfect answer. Mm-hmm. I kind of get the impression that this is what's happening here in this particular bit of dialogue where Jesus says, hey, what am I like? And mm-hmm. Peter answers and he says, okay, yeah, all right, that's good. Now who else has an answer? And Matthew answers and he says, yeah, okay, great. And then uh, Thomas gives the perfect answer, the one he was looking for to begin with. Mm-hmm. That could be. I, I guess I see um, a righteous angel and a wise philosopher as two different things. I mean, there, there, there are some pretty significant differences there. But if we're taking this as merely comparisons and that the idea that no comparison is absolutely perfect, I, I, I can see that. Um, yeah. But I do see, I do see a difference. I, I, I guess I, I see a little bit more of a difference between uh, the answers here, but I can also see your point, Father Tony. Yeah, I just uh, find I, so often with Gnosticism, the answer is rarely either or; it's usually both and. Mm-hmm. What I do and, think is interesting is that Thomas never Thomas does not actually find the comparison. Thomas just said, "I I can't I can't say it. I can't mm-hmm. speak it." Right. And that and that that's pretty significant in that you have you know two pretty concrete comparisons. And then you have this, I can't do it. Yeah, I'm. my mouth is utterly unable to say what you were like. Almost as if it was a physical impossibility. Not that he doesn't have an answer, it's just that his mouth can't physically form the words. Mm-hmm. Well, and if you've ever been drunk, really drunk, sometimes that can happen. And of course, Jesus goes right on to say, you know, you've become drunk from the bubbling spring. And a person who's intoxicated, you know, we know what, you know, what do cops look for when they are checking people at roadsides? Uh, they're checking to see, can they say the ABCs? Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I, you know, we, we can laugh about it, but I think it's kind of important here. And, you know, if I can throw something in there, you know, for me, I've always looked at this particular uh, verse as being almost the quintessential Gnostic equation. Uh, mm-hmm. if, if you look at it in another sense, because you get the first answer, the righteous angel or the just angel, and we're talking about something divine. You get the second answer, which is, you know, whether it's teacher or master, and you get something human. And then you get Thomas who stands up and basically says, there's, you know, it's, I can't tell you what it is. It's, it's ineffable. Yeah. And that in many ways, as I said, to me is the quintessential Gnostic equation. If we, we get in so many discussions over, you know, who was Christ? Was he human? Was he spirit? You know, was he a combination of the two? So to me, this all again just mirrors this constant question that comes up within, you know, Gnostic thought. What we're dealing with here, is it in the human realm? Is it in the divine realm? Or is it okay just to say, you know what? It's beyond me. It's ineffable. I don't know. Yep, you just mm-hmm. can't F it. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and of course, you know, I think, you know, and maybe to, uh, you know, further go down uh, Deacon John's uh, course of thought here, I think, you know, we've got that whole entire... You know, uh, psych, uh, high like psychic pneumatic um, kind of thing going on. I think also maybe being implied by these three different answers as well. Mm, yeah, yeah, that's an interesting idea. <clears throat> as we were discussing just before we started the recording here, um, I'm a big, uh, I have a big crush on April DeConnick, and, and um, one of the th- she wrote a book on this on this uh, on the Gospel of Thomas called Seek to See Him that I may have mentioned one or 60 times. 
uh, I, I think it's closer to 160 times. It's possible. <laughs> <laughs> At any rate, um, her, her, her. If if you haven't been listening to this show, and and why haven't you? Um, I will recap. So she, her. Um, hypothesis in that book is that um, the Gospel of Thomas is kind of a manual for a visionary ascent kind of a thing. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So one of the things that happens is there's this kind of catechism-like uh, question and answer thing that during this ascent process, so you'll you will ascend to one of the spheres of the planets, and the archon of that planet will ask you for um, ask you a question, and then you give the right answer, and you get to pass. So I always kind of look at this passage as this is a secret oral teaching for one of those passwords, you know, whether it's a name of God, uh, which is entirely possible, or some other set of secret, you know, Gnostic code words. Um, this is this is the oral teaching. So there's the stuff that got written down in the gospel, mm -hmm. and then there's the secret oral teachings that went along beside it, almost in a Masonic kind of a sense. Well we know it in a Masonic sense in the modern age where there's a, a trestle board where the, there's a kind of a graphical representation of a lecture and it's used as a memory aid kind of a thing. So mm -hmm. in this passage, this, you know, this particular logia is a memory aid for, okay, so this is the point when we're doing our teaching, this is the point where we tell our secret oral teaching of the three words to our initiates. I have nothing to base that on other than I think it's a cool idea. Mm -hmm. I think it's a really cool idea. <laughs> mm -hmm. But we certainly know that there were oral teachings that went along with these uh, stuff, sure. the stuff that got written down, and most of it is, you know, largely lost, yeah. unfortunately. Mm -hmm. But, uh, you know, wouldn't it be wouldn't it be interesting to recover that? It's like the lost words of Gnosticism. It would be interesting to recover it on one hand. I, I, I agree with you. The other question is that I have is, would it have had a whole lot of meaning to us today? Um, would would the, the, the oral teaching meant for those people at that time, what would that have done for us now? I mean, we already um, spent a lot of time arguing over what was written down back then and how mm -hmm. applicable it is to us now. Um, so I wonder about that oral teaching that was considered to be very private and very context, probably very contextual. How much good would it do us today? And I'm not saying this to be deliberately argumentative. I'm just point throwing that out as something to think about. Mm hmm yeah, I'm not sure of the answer to that. You know, if if it was so secret that they could that they couldn't or wouldn't write it down, then it was probably very important to them. Um, as to the context of it, I I don't know. Yeah, it's an interesting question. Well, you you know, I find uh, even in some groups, uh, you know, even present today, there are some teachings that. Uh, are not written down. They are part of an oral uh, tradition. Some things that are written down are written down by their own hand. They're never supposed to be transmitted in uh, like digital copies or typeset copy that now I hand off to Bishop Peterson and say, here, here's our secrets. If anything, I give you this information, you write it in your hand, whether it is symbols, whether they are words, and that is the way these traditions are kept going. Um, you know, so I, I think there is an argument, you know, that can be used for, especially in the esoteric, that there sometimes is a hidden esoteric teaching that is not written, that has been passed down, uh, sometimes for centuries, sometimes for longer than centuries. Um, you know, unfortunately, when it comes to many of the teachings of the Gnostics, I don't think that any modern Gnostic church can make claim that we have any secrets of these oral traditions that have been passed down, you know, throughout the millennia. And anyone who is making such claims, uh, I'm going to call out and say they're a liar because it's, it's not true. Um, you know, the rebirth of the Gnostic church uh, um, is pretty recent and hasn't been an unbroken chain of uh, this knowledge that is passed down, you know, um, many of these oral traditions that has, uh, or maybe were passed uh, from Jesus directly to his disciples. 
Yeah, yeah. You know, and, and I have mixed feelings about that generally. I mean, a religion, I, I think, for me anyway, a religion has to be a living thing. And mm-hmm. has to, you know, have to, has to take into consideration the time in which it exists. But at the same time, a religion should also be timeless. You know what I mean? Absolutely. So there's... It's a it's a fine balancing act, and I, you know, I often liken it to politics. Actually, that there's the the progressive and the conservative factions in any political system or in anything. You know, just it doesn't have to be politics. But there's those who want to move forward and try the latest thing, and then there are those who want to hold back and stick with what we know. And it's mm-hmm. this constant kind of push and pull that mm-hmm. that you know. It kind of creates a, a sort of balance in a perfect world. It does. World. Yeah. yeah. The push and pull is, is not a bad thing. Mm-hmm. Not a bad thing at all. It, it may be uncomfortable at times and expensive, but <laughs> uh, it's, not, it's not by any means a, a bad thing. Right. I'm trying to figure out how to work an Obamacare joke in there, but I can't do it. So. <laughs> Thank you for not. I'm just going to lay that out there for you. Okay. <laughs> oh, boy. So, um, moving on. There's a um, – you mentioned in the video show something about mm-hmm. uh, different types of leaders of this particular community. So, from mm-hmm. uh, Logan 12 to Logan 13, we go from mm-hmm. uh, follow James, he will be your leader – to mm-hmm. Thomas, who seems to have this spiritual understanding that the others don't have, mm-hmm. um, reminds me of the. Um, gosh, I, I can't remember now who. Uh, it might be Lomas and Knight, the the kind of the Masonic authors, um, Robert Lomas and something I forget. Anyway, uh, I think it's them. They talk about the Essenes and the from the Dead Sea Scrolls, the two. The, they're actually talking about two messiahs, two prophesied messiahs. There's a priestly messiah and a kingly messiah. Mm-hmm. And one of them was kind of secular power. The kingly messiah was kind of secular power. And the priestly messiah was kind of, um, you know, a uh, spiritual messiah. And so that's um, that's what came to mind when you guys were talking about that. I don't know if that's necessarily true. I I I don't know how closely the Thomas tradition is uh, associated with the Essenes and, and the Dead Sea Scroll writing, you know, folks. But yeah, I, you know, I I don't I don't know either. But what I will say, and this is something that I have seen in the scriptures, is that we do have some plurality of leadership. Uh, we have some examples of different types of leadership at the same time. When you look at um, the leadership of the Israel- Israelites when they were t- taken out of Egypt, you actually had three leaders. Uh, it, you had Moses, Aaron, and Miriam, their sister. Mm-hmm. And Aaron was the priestly leader. Moses was the lawgiver, but Miriam was the prophetess. And uh, she had a very important role to play in leadership. We hear a lot about Moses and Aaron, but, uh, you know, I think it's uh, Amos who actually just calls all three of them out as the leader and makes sure to mention Miriam in there. And when Miriam died, people mourned for a long period of time. But you actually had uh, different people taking, assuming different roles that were absolutely necessary Mm -hmm. in in that time of walking in the wilderness. Mm -hmm. So... um, that's kind of the reason why I brought this up is I thought to myself, well, yeah, James the Just may be the, 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 the person to go to. And he's not just a figurehead either. It seems to me from what Jesus had to say, he is the man to hold this community together. But now Thomas is holding something else. Mm-hmm. Um, although it does also seem to me that Jesus may have set Thomas up a little bit for some antagonism because he comes back and Thomas himself has to say, hey, guys, I'm sorry if I tell you you're going to kill me. Um and I don't know what that's going to do for the friendships there, but I think that yeah, I, do, I do think that it's interesting that those two passages are up next to each other, and it may suggest to me um, that the authority, authority as such, was perhaps dispersed into yeah. different people according to their abilities. Yeah, yeah. Um, 
and it could also be in if, if looked at in another light it, it could be kind of these levels of initiation that were so common uh, back then but between like say the uh, the Valentinian levels of initiation and things like that so when when Thomas gets it and when he says you know master I'm a, my mouth is unable to whatever whatever that Jesus recognizes okay you have reached this level of initiation and now I'm gonna take you aside and do this secret thing with you mm-hmm yeah, uh, I want to point out that David Atkins in the chat room, um, in the in the comments here on YouTube, asks: uh, Is it possible that saying thirteen is setting up Thomas in place of Peter as head of the church? Um, and and again, I think we've been talking a little bit about that here in regard to James. You know. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So in, in verse twelve, yeah. you have more of an official thing. What do you have to say, Deacon? I was going to say I'm going to play the the. I don't know what you want to call it here. It's sort of the outsider on this one. Um, Having read a lot of discussion about this myself, I've always sort of felt that this is a modern tempest in a teacup, if you will. And, you know, maybe that's my Eastern leanings, you know, from the past. It's when I think back to studying uh, Buddhism, for example, it was not at all uncommon for a student to meet with the teacher one-on-one and have the teacher say something along the lines of, you know, I'm no longer your master or I'm not your teacher. But that didn't for a minute mean that somehow that student was now ready to take over the sangha, you know, or start start teaching classes. It was very situational. It was like a way of saying, you know, great answer. Here's a reward. Now keep studying. So mm-hmm. I never quite understood where we were getting this interpretation from that, you know, there may have been some sort of, you know, consternation here or even a question because heaven knows we saw the same thing in the Gospel of Mary. You know, we keep reading into this that people are constantly, you know, worried about, well, who is in charge here? But I'm not seeing that myself. Well, it, he, it does, he does pretty much imply that, you know, if I tell you these things, you're going to throw big rocks at me. You know? Right. So he seems to believe, whether it's true or not, that um, this special knowledge that Jesus gave him will cause the others to be angry. <laughs> well, I, I, absolutely. But we're the ones implying that it's anger out of jealousy. I suppose that's true. Well, it, 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 the uh, you know the idea that Deaconic brings up, and then she brings up in the parallel verse in in canonical Gospel of John, is that the the, the stones are going to be raised up because it's blasphemy. Whatever is Thank said you. is that, it, that this this is this is a blasphemous thing. Mm-hmm. Um, so that that's why some scholars have said that Jesus. Uh, said something that either said the ineffable, ineffable get names of God, or somehow associated Jesus with this, with with those names, and mm-hmm. that that would have caused these very devout Jews to become very angry and stone somebody for blasphemy. Mm-hmm. Uh, my point just is, is that um, he comes back to his friends, and they ask, you know, and they ask him, and this is how serious it was. That he was expecting, or if he, if he was not exaggerating or being facetious, that he was expecting them to, to become extremely angry with him about what he had to say. Mm-hmm. Whether they were actually, whether he actually thought they were going to smash him with stones or not, I, I'm going to leave that aside. But he did anticipate that they, their reaction to what he'd been said was going to be very extreme. Mm-hmm. He himself, who was among their number, did not have this extreme reaction, which again may be the result of having drunk from that fountain, mm-hmm. and he was prepared and ready to hear what would have otherwise been a blasphemous statement, or would have would have been heard as a blasphemous statement. So that's something. It's another layer here. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, it, I think it's. <laughs> you read the Old Testament. The, uh, the the that community was ready to stone people at the drop of a hat. You know, mm-hmm. when if a if a teenager disobeyed his father, you know, bring him out to the edge of the village and stone him. It's, it's you know kind of <laughs> it, it didn't take a lot. There was a low threshold, a low barrier to entry to, for stoning. <laughs> in, in you know uh, 
BC Israel. So I don't know uh, whether or not people actually did that is a you know, certainly a question. But <laughs> I've really often joked to myself that whatever those three things were, it was probably like a recipe for some broiled fish or something, you know. And and Thomas just didn't want to own up to it. What, put, <laughs> put cumin on fish? No, I'm going to hit you with a rock. <laughs> well, that's Bishop Canterbury's department. He's our he's he's our great chef here. So. Mm, cumin and fish sometimes you know it really depends um but you know back to back to to this though specifically you know um you know we're we're kind of going around this idea that maybe it implies leadership but you know i would even kind of throw out you know does does initiation or even certain levels of initiation necessarily imply leadership i mean uh, i don't think gnosis and certain alignment in uh, enlightenment necessarily uh, uh, means one is ready for a leadership position, nor does it mean that one who is placed in a leadership position is necessarily attained to uh, specific levels of of gnosis or enlightenment. Right, um, that's why we have gnostic bishops. Oh, yeah, oh, <laughs> oh. <laughs> but, but I would have to agree with you, though. You know, one hundred ten percent on that, though. Uh, you know, Tony. Is that, uh, you know, again, you know, whether you're a Gnostic bishop or whether you're a bishop does not necessarily mean that the one has attained to a certain level of of spiritual attainment. Um, you know, again, going back to, you know, uh, how this works, I mean, there are traditions that I am part of where a student may be um, given a question or given a sentence or given a word or even given a symbol. And then they are through Skyrim or other, you know, uh, kind of magical and initiatory practices to come back and kind of give an interpretation of this, almost see if the candidate is now ready for that particular initiation. And, you know, and again, this is sort of what I think is almost implied, you know, um, when he says, you know, I'm on to utter what you were like and Christ comes back and says you have drunk and you've become intoxicated from from the bubbling spring and now he brings him off to the side and it's like he's received this private initiation you know so now he's this instead of what he was before and this he can't necessarily share with those of uh, let's use the term lower grade if you will um because they have not been initiated into that yet but i don't think that necessarily implies that he's either a their leader or um anything other than he has attained to a certain level of of gnosis that um, um they just haven't come to yet you know actually <laughs> it's funny i sometimes worry about this maybe um irrationally but uh, as a member of a couple of esoteric orders and Freemasonry and the like, you know, mm -hmm. I often wonder if, you know, some someday, you know, one of the higher ups in one of these orders is going to come to me and say, okay, you, you've done good work and here we go. We're going to give you this next level of initiation. We're going to tell you all the secrets. And you know what? It actually really is Xenu. And there's totally <laughs> aliens and they're living in volcanoes and the whole thing. <laughs> and I'll be like, oh, oh, okay. Uh. You know, well, I, I, I think we're when not I was... at liberty to discuss that. I think in the, in the video, I use the term authority as well. And I, I think that authority and leadership can be related, but they are not the same. Mm -hmm. And that a person may have a, a type of spiritual authority or authority to teach or speak on certain, certain matters, but that doesn't necessarily make them the lead. They, they don't doesn't necessarily make them the leader. Uh, they may not have the ability to organize and motivate and administrate and that sort of thing, but they may in fact have significant authority in terms of their knowledge or their, their, their spirituality or, or that sort of thing. So, mm -hmm. um, you know, we, we may also be looking at here, we've got, you know, James the Just as the person to go to leader. And then we come into this passage and we have Thomas who is given this knowledge, which might, which might, and it's not actually clear, but it might give him some kind of spiritual authority, but we don't know because we don't see how this plays out necessarily. Um, mm -hmm. We see that happen there. But that may be a very different type of 
if, if you even want to call it leadership, but it may be its own type of significant participation in the community that it that we can even we can even distinguish between leadership and authority when it comes to the roles that people can play. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I, I I think you're right. I I think that the the skills that make somebody a good leader uh, aren't necessarily the skills that would lead somebody to gnosis. Um, mm -hmm. They're not mutually exclusive, certainly, but uh, you know, they are, they are different sets of skills. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, if I can kind of throw a different twist on this, you know, I think we're, uh, you know, we've been looking at these passages, I think um, in many ways, kind of, uh, exoterically, do you think that there are maybe some esoteric kind of hidden meanings in all of this? Uh, even when Jesus says, you know, I if I tell you one of the or when Thomas says of the things that Jesus said to him, if I tell you one of the things he spoke to me, you will pick up rocks and stone me and fire will come from the rocks and devour uh, and devour you. Um you know, uh, we have fire used in, uh, it's a great symbol throughout many, uh, you know, uh, alchemical and esoteric and hermetic traditions. Um, the term rock can mean many things. Uh, you know, can we take a look at this set, do you think, on, on multiple levels, including something more esoteric and not just, hmm, this is a literal meaning, uh, kind of a fundamentalist reading that we're looking at this and this is what's being implied or is there something a little bit more under the surface that we're not catching mm. there's some more wisdom from the youtube comments along those lines actually um david points out that in in logan 19 mm -hmm. uh, a few a few down here jesus says congratulations to the one who came into being before coming into being if you become my disciples and pay attention to my sayings these stones will serve you Mm -hmm. So uh -huh. there's uh, there's an interesting parallel there with these passages so close together, mm -hmm. um, you know, talking about the stones uh, uh, serving somebody and the stones <laughs> killing people with fire because they were, you know, mm -hmm. thrown at somebody. So I think those, but, that is an interesting parallel. And we're also we also reminded um, when Jesus entered Jerusalem and the people were making a racket and the official said to Jesus, you know, shut these people up. And he says, you shut, shut them up. The rocks and stones are going to start to sink. <laughs> right. Mm -hmm. um, that, yeah, that there there is um, this that this the, the creation recognizes something mm -hmm. going on here. Yeah, I think it's uh, well, it could could be something along the lines of the divinization of the earth. Uh, mm -hmm. You know, the, the earth itself and, and stones, of course, being a representation of the element of earth and earth in a Malkuth kind of sense in a, you know, manifest universe kind of a sense. So the, the, the fire within the manifest universe is expressed out into the world and, you know. That kind of thing, perhaps. Well, I have something. I have something from April DeConnick here on that very mm -hmm. topic. If anybody is mm -hmm. interested. Okay. Um. Hold, oh goodness. Sorry. This. Um. Trying no, to pull okay. this up online, and I, I. I. do apologize. Hold on. No, I'll totally edit this part. No, I won't. Okay. Yeah. Of course you won't. Yes, I know. <laughs> um. Uh, while you're while you're looking here, David brings up another point. Um. Or you could spin it in a matrix sort of way. Thomas Didymus, uh, you have drunk from the spring that I have tended. Drink from my mouth and become like me. I will become that person uh, and obscure. I will be shown forth. Um, I'm not sure I got those comments in the right order. <laughs> yeah. Because YouTube is weird. But yeah, um, you know, it's, it's kind of a saying like you have, you know, uh, what's the... Apart from the the Joanite liturgy, comes from uh, John. Um, Whosoever drinketh of the water that the Logos shall give him shall never thirst. Mm -hmm. It's that same that same water, that bubbling stream. Uh, it shows up all over the place. Very common biblical uh, symbol. I found it here. Mm -hmm. um, it's from uh, April DeConnick's book. April DeConnick's book, uh, "Seek to See Him." 
And she, in chapter 5, she says, So what is the meaning of the statement regarding fire coming forth from the rocks and consuming the disciples? Only when this statement is viewed in the context of fire transformation is it sensible. As noted earlier, there are dangers involved when one seeks to encounter the divine but is not properly prepared or worthy. One of these dangers is not living through the fire transformation. Here the transformation occurs as the result of encountering the divine in utterable name. This encounter seems to function in, this, in, in the same way as the Visio Dei. Uh, Thomas's knowledge of Jesus' identity and his encounter with the divine name makes him, made him worthy to be transformed. But mm -hmm. the other disciples' ignorance makes them unworthy. Thus, if they were to encounter the divine name, they would be consumed and die rather than being transformed by God's fire. Mm. I don't know that the plain reading of the text entirely supports that. I'd have to look at this more deeply. Well, um, you also have to consider the milieu of the day, right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. It was certainly, you know, these kinds of symbols were floating around. Yeah, um, it's why the uh, you know I think it's why the phoenix is such an important uh, alchemical symbol. Mm -hmm. You know that there is there is fire and it consumes and it can be very devastating. But if you are prepared properly, you know fire is is very useful and you know can can burn away the dross and leave only the pure behind. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you know, I guess my, my my when I listened to what Thomas was saying, he's saying I can't tell you this because. It's going to offend you so deeply that you're going to raise up stones against me, and I've already been initiated into this level, so your your instruments of my destruction will turn on you. Mm -hmm. um, that, that that you know, dudes, I've heard something really important, something very significant has happened here. Sorry, you're not ready for it, and if I were to disclose it to you, we'd have a big mess. So, gonna leave it be for now. Mm -hmm. You know, again, you know, I'm I'm looking at this maybe a little bit more esoteric, and you know, and what I'm gonna kind of throw out right now um, may not necessarily be how this was uh, uh, looked at or any interpretation from back then, because I doubt if they would have had uh, um, this kind of information uh, back uh, two centuries ago. Um, but again, you know, we uh, we take a just at the end part of the verse. Fire will come from the rocks and devour, uh, devour you. Again, if we take a look at fire, fire is kind of being kind of that look of transformation of of uh, of rebirth of 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 getting rid of that which is no longer necessary. And we even like like in a forest, we get down here in Florida all the time. Lightning strikes, starts a forest fire. All the underbrush gets burnt away, but now you've got the trees that are ready to grow and mature. Um, rocks, interesting. I'd be very curious to see, you know, uh, kind of the Greek and see what word was used. But let's say for an example, it was, uh, you know, the word that uh, has been one of the names that I have chosen as a bishop, Kephas. Um, you know, Kephas, if we take a look at that, uh, has the numerical value of 729. 729 is also the same numeration of Baphomet, and through Advash Cipher, it becomes Sophia. So if we look at it, transformation will come from Sophia and devour you. Um, you know, again, are there secret, hidden, even meanings within this? Am I reading too much in this? Because, uh, you know, I'm just too much of a hermeticist and esoteric, maybe. Um, but I think that sometimes, you know, we have to look a little bit deeper within what is being said and not just upon the surface of the words and looking at them as kind of a literal translation. Yeah, no, I don't think that's inappropriate at all. I think that anytime you see um, symbols like stones or fire or any of those mm -hmm. things in a, uh, you know, a, a passage of scripture, I think that there's absolutely some opportunities there to wax philosophic about it. Mm -hmm. You know, so, you know, I sort of take that end part of the verse is again, as you're going to, because of this, there is now this transformation that it, that is coming from Sophia that will devour you. So we get this idea of this transformation from Sophia, which now brings us back to kind of that intoxicated from the bubbling spring. Um, so I sort of see that now 
it's all being related is Sophia's this bubbling spring, which is now causes transformation, which then devours you, you know, um, which I like a little bit more than thinking, oh, no, I'm being stoned. <laughs> You're throwing rocks in me. So, Deacon, any, th any thoughts for us? My only question to that one, and I've, I've been trying to soak that in, is that wouldn't, wouldn't Thomas want that transformation to happen rather than tell them I can't tell you? It, mm -hmm. there's, there's a bit of a connection missing there for me. Mm -hmm. Well, maybe they weren't prepared to hear those names. I mean, it may have been that – just a way of thinking about it was is that Thomas was the one who offered the evidence that he was prepared for the teaching by not being able to say anything because he had drunk out of the bubbling spr spring and had lost, he was not able to verbalize what Jesus, uh, a comparison to Jesus. Jesus takes him aside and gives him the knowledge because he was prepared for that knowledge. When Thomas comes back, he has the knowledge, but the, the other disciples themselves were not still not yet prepared for it. Mm-hmm. So Thomas, Thomas could give them the knowledge, but if they weren't prepared for it, they were going to get indignant and, you know, take up stones one way or, you know, either metaphorically or otherwise. Um, so I think it has to do, there was a step in there. Thomas right. was prepared that they, and they weren't, and Thomas could not, apparently could not prepare them. Right. And that, but that's where the, that's where I'm drawing the line is at the stones, because they're still the ones throwing the stones. So it's, you know, Thomas isn't bringing them uh, anything and throwing the stones shouldn't be rewarded uh, with, with being devoured by this transformation. I guess that's what's going on in my head is I, I can see, you know, why we want to dip in. And mm -hmm. I find myself in that same thing. I start reading it and I say, oh, you know, three answers, three uh things Jesus said to Thomas, we start getting into the numbers and things, you know, it's very interesting. It is very interesting. And, and, it, and it, it, it reminds me of the, the fact that, that this is such a, such a long process. Here you have Jesus's inner circle. They've been around for a little while and you know, we have one guy who's ready, who's prepared for, for, for a teaching. Um, and that there's so much, you know, that we can, we, you know, Bishop Ken, you and I have talked about this a lot. There are so many um, orders and organizations out there that claim to have these special teachings, and people will go online and download them mm -hmm. uh, online, and they're like, well, what's the big deal about this? And of course, they're not prepared to receive the teaching. Right. In, 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 in any way. Um, now, we don't go around, well, most part, we don't go around stoning people today, uh, but. I do whenever possible. <laughs> <laughs> I admire you for that. Um, but, the mind. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, we, it's, it's the idea that um, you can have a teaching, it can, it can be there. Jesus spoke it, Thomas knew it, but he wasn't going to, to lay it on somebody who wasn't prepared for that teaching. And we have that idea throughout the canonical New Testament as well as, as, as the Gnostic Gospels as well. It's that you know, there's, there's a preparation period, and a teaching can be misused, can be misunderstood, it can offend, um, or it can have absolutely no meaning or seem rather silly. Uh, for some, but for the person who is not prepared, I, I think that's actually key, Bishop Laney. Is again the, that Eastern side of me comes back, and it's a very natural interaction when I think to, you know, traditions that involve a lot of teaching and interaction, in the sense that you know you have that interaction with the group. Somebody in the group says something that indicates that they're ready to move on, or you know they're more in tune, and the teacher says, you know, come with me pulls them aside, but then what happens is unique to that individual, and uh -huh. it just make no sense to the others back there. So, I mean, to me, it just feels very natural. So I think that's, that's, that's key. It's also interesting that the Thomas's entire role in this in this little bit of dialogue is not telling people things, right? <laughs> the first time he says, uh, Jesus, I can't tell you that. And the second time he says to Peter, I can't tell you that. That's, yeah. So I think that's fairly telling in a symbolic way of, of what the, 
the Gnostic uh, experiences like generally. Right. And not, yeah. the, not the again, section, the whole gospel. Right. But again, if I can throw this out again, you know, we took a look at that second part of that last verse. Um, Fire will come from the rocks and devour you. And I kind of made this interpretation of kind of this transformation from Sophia will devour you. But yet, you know, Deacon, you know, you took the beginning part of the verse and he still kind of took it literal. Again, what if we were to take up from that first part? If I tell you one of the things he spoke to me and let's just let's for the sake of argument, let's take a rock. And let's make it Sophia again. If I tell you one of the things he spoke to me, you will pick up Sophia. You will pick up wisdom. Okay. If I tell you one of the things he... So maybe what he's implying here is if I tell you one of these things, you yourself will get wisdom. It's a wacky stretch, but I like it. I like it. Then is he sticking his tongue out and saying, but na 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 na. So he's just a dick. <laughs> but if we kind of look at it that way if I tell you one of these things he spoke to me you will pick up wisdom okay and and stone me and then you will be transformed from the wisdom and it will devour you um you know is that is what is being applied I don't know but I think that again all of these verses that we, I think, uh, kind of look at in the Gospel of Thomas, there are many ways to look at them, many ways of interpretation, and we have to spend a lot of time trying to find, you know, how this is actually transformative to us, yeah. and not just, I think, necessarily looking at them at only an exoteric or kind of a fundamental look yeah. on, okay, this is what the verse said, the verse said this, well... Okay, yeah, that's one interpretation of what the verse said. But how is this causing our own personal transformation? You know, what is this verse saying to us? Um, and again, what it's saying to me may not be the same as it's saying to Deacon John or to Bishop Peterson or to you, you know, uh, of, you know, Father Tony. And I think that's kind of the beauty of many ways of, of Gnosis is that it can become very personal and, and it's transform, uh, transformation, um, isn't necessarily kind of this blanket universal thing that is the same for me as it is for you, as it is for someone else. Yeah. It certainly isn't. <laughs> I, you know, I, I guess for me, part of it is um, one of the things that I heard when I started learning about hermeticism and ceremonial magic is to know, to will, to dare, and to keep silent. Yes. And What's that? that the, the mystery of the Sphinx, they call that, I think? Yeah. Yes. And it's, it's, you know, one of those, it's keeping silent. Mm -hmm. Yeah keeping my yap uh, shut um, really serves, it serves me well in a number of ways. For one thing, if I have an experience of, of personal gnosis, um, it, it, you know, it, sharing it with other people may make no sense to them whatsoever. Sure. Um, yeah, like uh, like Matthew says in the YouTube uh, comments here, the the teaching has to be experienced. You can't, you know, you can you can say it out loud all you want, but it doesn't mean anything until the actual experience happens. I think that's a great yeah. point. Mm -hmm. And and so um, you know, so even if even if I were to be able to, you know, repeat verbatim what had happened to me, other people look at me silly. Uh, they think I'm nuts, which is probably true, but more nuts than I actually am. And then they, you know, and then I'm doubting what happened. And we've kind of got this, you know, downward spiral of self-doubt. And the experience loses its, its power for me. Um, so that can actually drag things down. Now, there may be a point, however, where you're dealing with somebody who has achieved a certain level and they can actually assist you with this process. I, I have a teacher right now in a different separate spiritual tradition and what I have found is that some of the things that I experience he grasps. Some of them you know, I share with him and he has a much better understanding in fact than I do and there are cases where you know there's not much he can do with that information. 
Um, and we kind of have a push-pull there, and uh, that works. But if I were to share this with a wider audience, uh, it may not be helpful and may even be detrimental to me and to them. Yeah. Well, this is probably a good point to wrap up. We are approaching our hour here. Um, I'm always kind of amazed that we can go an hour and 15 minutes on these things. <laughs> yeah. I, I, I always start off and I'm like, oh, God, this is three sentences. Can we talk for an hour and 15 minutes about three sentences? But you put a bunch of Gnostics together and we can just go and go. That's uh, <laughs> one of them universal truths. <laughs> so anyway, um, so uh, thank you, John, once again for joining us. Always oh, you're a very welcome. Have you Thanks for having me? Yeah, and uh, and I wanted to publicly say, great job for the conclave. It was uh, it was really good, really good conclave. I got some more videos coming out uh, from on on my vlog from the conclave. So awesome. stay tuned for those. Awesome. And uh, and yeah, and are, how glad are you that you don't have to do it next year? <laughs> I, I won't say I won't say never until I know for sure. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, good point. Good point. All right. Well, anyway, um, I will uh, like uh, I will <laughs> I will attempt to release this this weekend for those who are. <laughs> but you know, if you're listening to it now, you don't care when I released it. Um, anyway, uh, and I and I'll get the other one from. Um, uh, why is my mind blank right now? All right, last week's guest, John Bishop Plummer. Yeah, Bishop Plummer, yes. Yeah, yeah. Sorry, Bishop Plummer, if you're listening to this, I forgot the podcast. I'll put it out. Uh, I'll put it out soon. Uh, you know, blame it on me. I'm a bad producer. I'm bad at it. Also, we're, I'm looking for volunteers on a completely unrelated, <laughs> completely unrelated note. If you have any interest at all in assisting with the uh, production of audio and video for the Gnostic NYC Network. We're uh, we're looking for help. We've got a lot of ideas and not enough people to execute them. So, please give us a, an email or a, a, a you know a comment on, on our Facebook page or whatever. Uh, I, I, no experience required. I can teach you everything you need to know because I'm that good. And you won't keep silent about that. Yeah. <laughs> What's that, John? I said, as long as they don't come back and we have to throw rocks at them. Nope. No, we. Will, I promise not to throw any rocks at anybody um, in the next couple of days. So, uh, with that, uh, I think we'll wrap it up. And uh, thanks again, everybody, for another great conversation. Thank thanks you so much. And we'll see everybody next week. All Good right. Good night, everyone. Good night, everyone. Good night. This has been a production of the Gnostic NYC Network. For more information on this and all of the Gnostic NYC Network's programming, visit GnosticNYC.com. This podcast has been released under a Creative Commons Attribution Share Alike 4.0 International License.